Hey there, I'm Matthew Foley and this is ISO Insights, where God's truth grows in the midst of current culture, renewing the mind and spirit. Welcome back to ISO Insights, and I'm your host, Matthew Foley, which you just heard from the introduction. But what you haven't heard is that we have Crystal Smith on today. For those of you that don't know Crystal, she works here at ISO. She's worked here for years uh, before, before me, since the time of the launching. So that's back in 2018, but even before the launching. Uh, and we'll get into some of that later. How are you doing, Crystal? I'm doing great. Thank you for having me here today. Absolutely, for sure. And um, we, we've got all kinds of different things to talk about. So we could just jump right in. What are the different things you do? You're nice or have done. Or have done. <laughs> so I actually uh, started before we launched, you're right, uh, mm-hmm. 2016, and uh, I came in as an intern and just did some work in the office and did a writing project. Mm-hmm. And I shifted into the writing mode, and then from there, I noticed that we needed some administrative stuff because we literally, so when I started, we had white paper with our outlines. So um, those colors you see on the outlines now, uh, I was the color girl. (laughs) It kind of became a joke for a while, you know, like she's our color girl because I was like, we need some color on these things. So So like the red, the green, the green, the green, the the blue blue boxes. Now, of course, you know, Michael Dutton, he of course perfected the colors, but it was just like, guys, we got to have some color. So um, that's literally where I started was like before we started and uh, did the writing and then the administrative assistant, which is something I'm very accustomed to in Mm -hmm. my background and uh, did that for quite a while. And then it's kind of shifted in once we launched into public relations and working with students. And I did that for quite a while. Mm -hmm. Enjoyed it very much. Uh, Love getting to answer the students questions and it's a very big job, so I yeah. uh, really admire how we have Jennifer right now just knocking it out of the park with that. Mm-hmm. She's doing a great job. She does mm-hmm. a great job. Yeah. She does a great job. Yeah. And I know what it takes to do that. And so I'm just mm-hmm. like, go girl. <laughs> <laughs> go Jennifer. And uh, then I shifted over to the marketing director. And mm-hmm. um, Oh, my so, word. Yeah, so that's... Just like so many different changing <laughs> positions. I would, I would, you know, it was always a running joke. First of all, everybody who works here has had to do multiple things at some point. But the people that were here from the beginning have done everything. I yeah. Mean, like literally have been a part of doing everything, it seems like. You know, and that was really hard at first because I would start something and I would be like, okay, I really got this going. And then it's like, mm-hmm. oh, we've got to shift you. And I'm like, what? <laughs> <laughs> right when you, I just got this fixed. Yeah. I'm r- right when you get comfortable, you have to do something else. Yeah. and But, you know, that's been great, though, for mm-hmm. um, just the Lord. I've seen him doing that, uh, yeah, training yeah. my skill sets. Mm-hmm. And so when I finally landed in marketing, because of my creative mm-hmm. edge, that's really where I find a, a, a happiness and a flow. A happy place? Yeah, a happy place. Yeah. So I get what, to color. What's been your favorite hat to wear here? <laughs> my favorite hat? Yeah, so far. Um, Who knows what kind of wild hats you're going to wear in the future. But So I think my favorite hat would actually be as part of the intercessors team. Oh, okay. Let's talk so, about yeah. that. Let's dive into that a little bit. Intercessors team, when did you, because I've been a part of the intercessors team here at ISO. We have a team that uh, meets here and a group of people that uh, have known each other for a long time and that just pray over all the situations that we're concerned with. Um, and I can't remember when I started coming, but it was probably around 2019 yeah. um, that I phased into the group. Uh, and you invited me, actually. I yeah. remember that. But uh, with, with that prayer group, um, when... Did you start it, and how did you start it? Um, so, actually, I started it, it was probably shortly after we launched. I can't exactly remember when, but I pulled one person that I knew from 
our church at OCI yeah, yeah. Um, that had just been a phenomenal prayer warrior mm. for me. And I invited some others, and the Lord didn't see fit to bring them. And so for months, it was just this one little person. That's and awesome. I, when we just walked this building, um, and then I've watched the Lord grow that into 12 to 15 people, you know, as a, wow. a regular Thursday event. It's organic growth right there. It is. And it's been, it's interesting to watch how they grow. Um, I think that why it's my favorite, though, thing, favorite hat to wear is because prayer is what drives everything. Mm -hmm. And so it's an honor to get wow. to do that. You know, I'm, I want to go and get into the calling, but it's amazing that you said prayer drives everything. Uh, we, uh, I'll, I'll say this, just so we get the plugs in here, <laughs> a lot of the courses we're going to be plugging in the, these two episodes that we're doing right now with Crystal are going to be women in ministry, of course. It's going to be, um, you mentioned gifts of the spirit. She just mentioned before we started, she, she, because this is part of her job, has yeah. been. She's like, oh, we got to do women in ministry, gifts of the spirit. And what was the third one? I'm trying to remember. The book of Esther. The book of Esther, but, yeah, because we, we may dive into that later. <laughs> but I'm wondering if you're going to hit on prayer strategy. Prayer strategies, exact. See, she did it a fourth time. So Karen Wheaton, I love yeah, that one, yeah. especially when she's got that bread, that loaf of bread, and she's knocking on the, the door, and she's saying, praying, pray until. Mm -hmm. I mean, that, that teaching is incredible. And so. I, if you want to find any of those, go on to isow.org. But these are all uh, the concepts that these people of God have brought to us, and even um, Prayer Secrets of Great Intercessors that Perry did, yeah. um, Perry Stone. Those ideas, people don't realize the degree of influence prayer has on the spiritual realm. In fact, there's like a big conversation in Christian history. I remember hearing about this in uh, the history of Christianity class that I, when I was in college, that early, early on, there was a fight between the idea that God is sovereign and powerful and controls all things and what motivates Christians to pray. Mm. But in the Bible, God responds to people's prayer and will change a circumstance because they actually prayed about it. So Christians, right. Abraham even yeah. changed his mind. Ooh. Right? <laughs> Abraham changes God absolutely. Moses turned God's hand because he interceded for the children of Israel. Right. Crazy stuff like that. So when you have that relationship with God, and I mean, how humbling is that to be considered a friend of God, but mm -hmm. to be able to speak to the, the creator of the entire universe about a situation that's going on, yeah. um, you know, in the school or in the world and, and have that change, is, it's mm -hmm. incredible. I think um, one thing that that makes me think about is actually in my experience, uh, with people that talk about prayer, people that talk about having the power of God and experiencing God moving in their lives, but also trusting in God. When I, when I grew up, I went to a Baptist school that was a huge blessing for me because of the background, the, the training in God's word. But it had a lot of people, because I'm Pentecostal, I didn't really tell people that, but it had a lot of people that were, <laughs> that were very opposed to Pentecostalism and they felt like it was emotionalism or could be even worse, something that wasn't of God yeah. uh, spiritually, like even demonic. So they are resistant to that. But I grew up with this experience of people that prayer is everything in the life of a Pentecostal person. Prayer, because you, you know, if your hose malfunctions outside when you're watering, you bind the devil. I'm serious. Like people in old school Pentecostalism is like, Satan, I bind you while the hose is freaking out. And they'll be like, Poor water hose. Yeah. They're just like, wrap it up with some tape. Baptist person would be like, Why are you freaking out? Yeah. <laughs> it's just the hose, Look, man. Just go down to Home Depot and yeah. buy yourself a new water hose. So the, the Pentecostal is like, I'm not going to bind this poverty spirit. So that's what happens whenever the hose malfunctions but uh, it was just a completely different way of thinking yeah. for a lot of southern baptist people that i was around um but they loved the lord deeply knew the word of god so prayer intercession 
is a huge change, I think, for a lot of Baptist people. They don't see the value in it. But that brings me, the reason I've segued is that brings me into your background, your your, yeah. what, your life story, where you grew up. So, sure. Um, so, actually, my experience with the Southern Baptist was a little different on that. Um, I I grew up with people that prayed. Really? Yeah. Now, they didn't pray in the way that Pentecostals necessarily pray. Mm-hmm. Um, but even the way we pray on Thursdays and how we allow one person to pray and then another person to pray and not everybody praying at once, yeah. that comes from my Southern Baptist roots. Really? Right. So you would yeah. learn to listen to what other people are praying and then you build on that. You know, you're completely right because Pentecostals do this thing. It's not even it's not even uh, corporate prayer. Uh, what was the name? It's concert prayer is what they technically call right. it because everybody prays at, at the same, same time. time. Even over lunch, man. <laughs> <laughs> my grandparents did that. Everybody would pray at the same, same time. But you don't necessarily you can't necessarily be edified by another person's prayers if you're praying yeah you know so sometimes there's a there's a time to be silent and there's a time to speak up mm-hmm. and so um I did see that in the southern baptist realm but you are correct uh I did grow up and I started out in the methodist church actually really I didn't even know about yeah, that. yeah so that that was, was like my this is a friend of mine so <laughs> I didn't even know that <laughs> that was very in very young years and then uh we shifted to southern baptist mm-hmm. um and what I loved about the Southern Baptist realm was that I gained a firm foundation in doctrine and a firm foundation in theology. Uh, they are so Bible-centric that it's incredible, and they're very evangelistic in nature, and mm-hmm. I love that about them. Um, the one thing that I found in the church was that toward the end of my time there, um, I would be sitting in a, a, a service, and we you know, we do our three songs, you do your opening, etc., and I remember sitting and looking out the window and going, Lord, there has to be more than this. Really? You know, there, there has to be more than this. And it wasn't the... the what age were you? Uh, that was in my 20s at okay. that point, yeah. Gotcha. And um, it just, it, I loved the church. The people were kind to me at that church. And, um, you know, I it was phenomenal, but it was, it just was like my spirit was crying out for more. And... Um, how I got there, because, you know, anyone listening to this, if you know anything about the Southern Baptist realm, mm-hmm. they they don't believe in the operation of many of the gifts of the spirits, the continuation of the gifts. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, so how do you go from being Southern Baptist to Pentecostal? Well, that <laughs> is definitely uh, divinely orchestrated. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I have to say it's that. Not the, it's not the biggest. I mean, if you chose some traditions, it's not always the biggest jump. I think maybe Presbyterian would be an even bigger jump. Yeah. Because Baptist treat the word of God in a similar manner to the way Pentecostals often will. But still, there's this weird disconnect with spiritual things. I I agree. Um, And I totally agree on the Presbyterian thing. That would be an even bigger jump, but uh, for Southern Baptists. So in my time in the church, um, things like speaking in tongues, that was considered charismatic Mm -hmm. witchcraft, you know? Really? Yeah. Um, I was told that. uh, Also, there were many other things, like the words of knowledge. Like we have a mm-hmm. word of knowledge now, and it's like it's operating through the Holy Spirit. But that wasn't the way word of knowledge was taught in the Southern Baptist realm. It was just like you had this understanding that you wouldn't normally have. And prophecy, whereas we truly believe in prophecy, like coming forth from the Spirit, yeah. prophecy in the Southern Baptist Church is that you are simply bringing forth truth that's already really? been revealed. So it's basically like reading Scripture. Right. Yeah. Right. So you. So I've literally heard that, by the way, from a Baptist friend. Like, well, prophecy can be just reading the Bible. Exactly. Yeah. And um, so there's a a bit of a disempowerment in that Mm -hmm. um, because you're only operating in half of what God's given us. So he's given us the word and he's given us the spirit. But if you're only operating in the word and, and not to say that Southern Baptists aren't 
don't have a level of baptism. It's kind of like the scripture that talks about, you know, you go in ankle deep, you go in knee deep, you yeah. go in waist deep. Yeah. Well, they get in ankle deep and even some knee deep. But, you know, mm -hmm. it's that getting over the head and really surrendering wow. is the difference. You know, I talked with a family member about this because, like, both of you family I'm married into has a lot of experience with Baptists, but they themselves were spirit-filled, um, and they had they were surrounded by Baptist family, by friends and loved ones, and had all kinds of conversations about this. Because when they're your family, you know, you can't run from your family. So you got to have the conversations. <laughs> uh, but one of them was it's true. Uh, an observation that um, I made with a family member, as I, I said, you know, well, Baptists, you've got to have some sense of forward progress. Baptists believe in sanctification. They don't believe that you'll never be free from sin. They always, there's like the kind of this assumption that, you know, you're always going to sin. Every day I'm probably going to end up sinning, which Pentecostals don't think that way. Um, but or a lot of Pentecostals right. don't think that way. But Baptists, Southern Baptists also believe in once saved, always saved. Yeah, so there's, yeah. there's, there's that dichotomy too. And one thing that I remember though, I, this is crazy, and you can confirm or deny this. I think that Baptists oftentimes will be tempted to think, especially really revivalistic Baptists, mm -hmm. that they'll really get saved and then later in their life they'll have a deeper encounter with the Lord and then they'll think they, they actually got saved then. You know, it's funny you should mention that because when I was asked when I was first saved, um, I went back and I have like three experiences where, mm -hmm. but here's the thing, Southern Baptists, you believe in um, an intellectual salvation yeah. and then you also believe in a moral regeneration. Could you explain those? So, sure. So what I mean by that is like your intellect, you come to an, a knowledge, a saving, a knowledge of Christ in your head, mm -hmm. in your intellect, right? Yeah. Um, then you have like moral regeneration, which is <clears throat> that place where you're suddenly not doing what you were doing before. Yeah. And then you have this saving faith where you really grasp um, who Christ is. And mm -hmm. some people just go straight to saving faith, but um, in circumstances, life circumstances, like what mine were, um, I think I hit that intellectual faith at a very young age. Mm -hmm. And then it was a moral regeneration around 15, wow. but saving faith was around like 26. Like I can say at 26, I knew beyond a shadow of a doubt, okay, I've been with the Lord, I've mm -hmm. and I've been close to Him, but not that intimate relationship, and it, it shifted there. Wow, um, man. So, there's. Do you think that you really were saved with that intellectual faith? Uh, yeah. Uh, well, you know, <laughs> <laughs> a lot of confusion. <laughs> yeah, but this well, is a real question. Know, I mean, no, Pente Pentecostals experienced that. I want to say that Pentecostals experienced the same thing. Right. Uh, okay. Go ahead. Sorry. I was. Yeah. Well, you're fine. Yeah. Uh, I was just going to say. So there's nuances that I see between the faiths. Yeah. So Pentecostals, they don't believe in uh, once saved, always saved, but yeah. but they do believe that you can come back to the Lord. Well, mm -hmm. in the Southern Baptist Church, what it is, is if you've been, the how the altar call happens is if you've been away from the Lord, if you've backslidden, come back home. Wow. Okay. So, I mean, it's, it's kind of a nuance to me. Now, of course, that's a whole nother conversation as to uh, salvation, but was I saved at that age of four? I think I was saved as far as I knew how to be saved, yeah. if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, and then at 15, I, so you respond to the level of light you're given, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And so the level of truth, the level of truth mm -hmm. and the level of light you're given from the Lord. And if you respond to that, then the Lord gives you more. And I've even spoken with a Messianic rabbi at one point about this. And he said, you know, you do like talking about baptisms of mm -hmm. the spirit. 
So is there just one baptism or are there multiple? Well, there are actually multiples. You continually get refilled, but it's, mm-hmm. the Lord's only going to give you what you're able and capable to respond to. Wow. Because if you don't respond, if we don't respond to what the Lord reveals to us, then we become accountable to it. Wow. Wow. I, I, you know, there are seven spirits of God in Revelation, and I know early Appalachian Pentecostals, they kind of went crazy. I'm not going to lie. I mean, everybody agrees on that now because they would, there would be, and it's not all of them. Were they the snake handlers? Some of them. I mean, but there were edges that would go off. It's fringes that would go off and would start talking about wild baptisms. They would say there's the the jumping frog baptism of the Holy Spirit. Like they would say there were levels. And I'm not lying to you. They would, they'd be like, it, it makes you begin to do jump frogs over each other. Like two brothers in the Lord would start playing the game. Was it leapfrog? They would leapfrog. do that. Yeah. And they'd be like, it's the Lord touching you. It's like crazy stuff. It's like, no, it's not. It's just you doing leapfrog. Okay. Uh, <laughs> so I would even insert that maybe, you know, from a Southern Baptist realm that's kind of come this way. I'd be like, well, perhaps there was something in that person's childhood that they needed to just grow out of, you know, and it yeah. just happened to happen in church because yeah. it does manifest how our flesh responds is different for each person. Mm-hmm. And so um, that's true. At ISO, we always strive to provide discounts and incentives for our students. Now we're thrilled to announce our best value ever. The ISO all access pass for just $99 per month. Any student can access our entire learning platform an ever-expanding library of fascinating, groundbreaking teaching at your fingertips for the average price of just one ISO course. There has never been such a prime opportunity to pursue your biblical education. Students in many traditional schools pay $100 to learn every day for every single course. With the All Access Pass, that amount gives you access to our entire course catalog. At ISO, you can learn from world-class teachers on a wide variety of subjects, all at your own pace. With the subscription-based model of the All Access Pass, there are no obligations to put yourself in debt for decades. If you're hungry to learn about the Word, there's never been a better value. That's countless hours of teaching and materials with no limit on how much you can learn. Now, more than ever, ISO is excited to connect the Word with the world. Go to isow.org to get started with the All Access Pass today. God will do strange things to our minds. Like I remember a a revival, and we get to this later about like the depths of the holy laughter. But it was a Rodney Howard Brown revival at the Oral Roberts University back, I think, in the '90s. And there was a video from it. This guy, the Lord touched him really strong, and he was like barely able to stand up. These ushers were helping him, but he was laughing and he was saying, "Yeah, I went out in the woods and I was talking to the Lord, and I I ended up hugging this tree, and like literally tree hugging." (laughs) So that's where tree huggers came from. At first, you think. This guy's crazy. Like this, how could God do this? But then he said, but then the Lord started speaking to me and he was using that and he would talk to me about that I never had a good relationship with my father. Hmm. Yeah, and he said, and said, God started talking to me about my broken relationships in my family. And I'm like, well, that sounds like God. <laughs> that does sound like God. Why he had to, yeah. to hug a tree, I don't know. I don't but. know, but God maybe knew. And, and he, I think the love of God was overwhelming him to where God was trying to heal things in his heart to where he was like having hardness that was softened. Yeah, maybe. And then he had this random affection hit him, and he was out in the woods walking, and he was just hugging a tree. <laughs> you know? <laughs> I don't know. I can't reason through it all. But um, reason and faith are not always 
easy for people to reconcile. Like atheists just give it up. But Baptists, in the Baptist world, there is a strong pursuit that faith and reason can be fully reconciled, that your mind can fully grasp what the Word of God says, mm -hmm. that you can understand, and we can defend the Bible through reason. Oh, That's absolutely. So um, I actually had put it in my, when we were talking about this beforehand, I was thinking on this, and I was like, after a, of course, growing up in the church and then uh, my in my 20s in the church, hearing what I heard from the pulpit, mm -hmm. you hear so much doctrine. But I remember I took a Sunday school class, and after one semester of that, I was so firm in the Baptist doctrine and faith that mm -hmm. I was able to go after that and teach a woman's conference. Really? Now, I've been in the Pentecostal movement for 10 years, and I still have yet to hear a very solid teaching like that. Probably the closest that I've heard that just really defends the, the Pentecostal doctrine and faith would be Perry's teaching on the gifts of the Holy Spirit yeah. um, because it's so in-depth. But I mean, just simple, you know, saved by faith, justification, um, you know, once saved, always saved. Literally, they just drill it into you so well mm -hmm. that you can go and re-articulate it very easily. And wow. I, I really admire that. Mm -hmm. um, and that gives you a firm foundation in the word. I'm sure it does. And do you think that that's... Uh, that that cultures, where do you think it's coming from? Where do you think that that drilling in, in children, is it just a religious thing or is there real power behind it? What did you experience with that? Well, there's real power. Um, it's also part of just their practice and tradition that, mm -hmm. you know, you stay in the word. So it was n very common to hear from the pulpit, read your Bible, read wow. your Bible, mm -hmm. read your Bible. Now that said, what I do want to say is that, um, because of the limitations that they set on the Holy Spirit, mm. they lean so heavily on the word, but there's this moment I think coming that when, when the Holy Spirit light, alights upon them, you know, and yeah. that understanding comes, yeah. is, is gonna be really helpful. Wow. Well, I, I wanna, we'll circle back around to some of those experiences because uh, I think I just want to dive into the Baptist world because that's such a huge part of your upbringing and, sure. and a large part of your identity. And that's a good thing. That's not yeah. a bad thing. It's no. the word of God and the way you were raised. Um, what are some things, what happened in your life growing up? What's your life story? Well, my life story uh, <laughs> is one of those that you don't look a lot back on. Um, mm -hmm. But I've had a lot of healing in it. So uh, when I was six months of age, my mom and I both came down with what's called encephalitis meningitis. Mm. And this was at a time when that had not been heard of. And uh, so literally the doctors sent us home and said, do not tell anyone because we don't want this getting out. I mean, you can get encephalitis or you can get meningitis, but you don't oh. typically get encephalitis meningitis. And so, of course, I don't have a memory of it, but it was apparently really, really rough. Um, and then at, uh, I was 18 months old when my father died. Wow. Yeah. He died at 31 of a massive coronary. So... Uh, I grew up without my dad around, and that's always been an absence in my life. That said, my mom wasn't able to talk a lot about it because of the tragedy yeah. of it. Sure. But she, the one thing she would always say was, your dad was a Christian. Your dad was always reading his Bible. And so for me, I have an older sister on his side, and she went to the funeral, and she was 12, and she's not been in a church since, to my knowledge. But for me, it drove me to the church mm -hmm. because my father's face was there mm -hmm. and so it's like that connection to my father yeah wow. and um 
So beyond that, um, not something I typically talk about because it's it's in the past and it's um, it's been healed. And at this point, I'm the only reason I'm going to speak it is because I know what we are talking about otherwise. And so it gives me a little bit of a platform to discuss what we are mm-hmm. going to discuss later. Yeah. And that was that in the Methodist church at the age of four, um, I was kidnapped by a stranger and taken. And so, you know, that brought about when you do something like that to a four year old child, a four year, a child's brain is not fully formed until they're 21. Mm-hmm. And so they only have a certain capacity to deal with uh, violence, abuse, anything like that, um, trauma. I mean, just the trauma of being taken. And so that was probably one of the hardest things for me. And it was in the 80s, so yeah. counseling was not a big thing back then. Mm-hmm. My mom took me. Of course, I was not uh, able to articulate anything. You know, four, years, four old, years old, <laughs> you, you can't articulate. Yeah. You're living in fear. And so you can't articulate that. And I didn't articulate anything about that basically until I was about 15 years of age really so um you know I dealt with that on my own and trying to how how did you process it at that point after all those years at that point um and the only reason I process start spoke up was something was said at school that made me kind of afraid and I was like oh really yeah and it was was fear that caused you to articulate that yeah and um so beyond that um Looking back, and so it's something I will always advocate, is if I hear of a child, and I have a friend that had it happen to her daughter, um, if I hear of abuse in a child situation, I just immediately tell the parents, get them in counseling, keep them in counseling. Don't let this, because what happens when you have any kind of trauma, it doesn't matter you know, if it's a veteran that goes into the war or if it's a child that's going through abuse, a couple, things, a couple different things happen. One is the you almost have this split in the spirit. So you have this place where you suddenly have to compartmentalize something, a a trauma, right? And um, I had two early childhood traumas, which was my father dying in the kidnapping. And so you begin to compartmentalize those where you can function during the day, but then you, when you get alone, then you're trying to process those things out. Is it just because you can't be able to handle that overwhelming emotion while doing daily life? Correct, right. Because, and... Of course, you know, as a child, you're already emotional. Mm-hmm. I mean, how many kids have temper tantrums just because they're having an emotional day? Yeah. Because you don't have control over those functions yet. So there's that. And then the other thing that happens is that um, literally it becomes you so encapsulate trauma sometimes that um, it, it's almost like a pill mm-hmm. of poison. And really? so you, you keep it so enclustered that once you begin to go through daily life and the pressures of life, if you get under too many more stressors, mm-hmm. then that can just kind of go push. Wow. And then you have post-traumatic stress disorder set in, depression, anxiety, all of those things come from that, you know. And so my greatest encouragement to anyone knowing if there's someone that sees this podcast today and says, you know, I know someone that's gone through something, encourage them wow. to go to counseling. Yes, the Holy Spirit is our counselor, but there is a process that happens within us um, as you talk through those things. Wow. Counseling is something I, I know that people were freaked out by in the 80s, that people didn't trust psychiatrists, or they thought that it was an embarrassing thing if you went. These days it's becoming more mainstream. That people go and process their emotions. I think, so a lot of people, the stigma was that you were, if you were unhealthy, you went to a counselor, mm. right? I actually think counseling is a healthy person's action. Mm. Because here's the reality 
we live in a day and a time when there are stressors all over the place. It doesn't matter if it's work, if it's yeah. home life, et cetera. Yeah. Um, but to me, that is a sign of someone wanting to get better or wanting to stay better. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you can go to a regular doctor on a yearly basis and no one says anything, right? Yeah. You can go to a doctor um, when you have a cold and no one says anything. Mm -hmm. But then if we put a stigma on mental health, especially with the amount of suicides we have in this nation, we don't let people process the trauma that's happened to them. We're going to continue to have this problem. Mm -hmm. I, I think that counseling, I, people used to get that from grandparents that lived in the home with them, from parents in the, in the, I know in the United States. Now it's just normal for grandparents to be in a separate house or have a separate situation. But back in that time, everybody took care of each other, lived with each other, families would live in a, a house all together. And I think that at that time, in those days, people didn't realize it, but they were getting counseling emotionally and mm. spiritually from people that had so much life experience that they were emotional experts. <laughs> right. So the family system was more closely knitted. And yeah. as America, we've become so individualistic in nature yeah. that we break apart from that. And so when you have a family system um, falling apart and then like with my family, uh, with my mom being widowed from my father, um, there wasn't a dad in the yeah. household to kind of help process all that. So mom became mom and dad. Mm you know, trying to raise three kids. Traumatized at, herself. Having right. to deal with the trauma of all the things that have happened. So, and, and I did ask permission to share this because I, it's, all, it's her life story and I don't want to mm -hmm. um, ever overstep that. But her trauma was not only my dad, uh, which, so she was 33 when he died. Wow. And she, he, mm. he was 31. Um, she had had a car accident where her mouth had to be uh, wired shut shortly really? before that. So when she found him, she tried to uh, resuscitate him. He, she had gone to work. He wasn't feeling well, so he stayed home. And she called, and she just she felt something in her system that she needed to go home. And so she found him in a room that uh, he didn't often go in, and a sock in one hand and a shoe in the other. And um, she tried to give him mouth-to-mouth -mouth resuscitation. So when she did that, she tried to rip open her mouth to wow. try to yeah and so then you know one time uh not too long ago a few years ago the lord really just laid it like gave me a revelation of what that was like being widowed with your mouth mm. shut because what happens when you're in grief you cry right mm -hmm. i mean you need to weep yeah and so for my mom she didn't get to weep not only because she had to pick up the strings or pick up things and go yeah she had to just do that, but also physically, she mm -hmm. just couldn't weep it out. And she was taught that counseling was not, you know, and so yeah. that was just one layer. Um, and I'll only go back one other layer to this. And that was that the husband before that, um, before my dad, she had been married before and uh, he had been living with a woman for a very long time. And he, um, married the woman in August and he murdered her in October. Mm -hmm. And then he married my mom in November. Oh my word. And so then he beat her and tried to kill her. She left at gunpoint twice. So you're talking about layers of trauma that never 
were able to be resolved because of a stigma against counseling and it's like come on guys wow you know so anyways you know it's amazing (laughs) i think about a story in the bible when jesus there's that boy that the spirit was in him and it was casting him into fire and water and his father brings this this boy to jesus and the disciples can't cast it out right jesus that's that's where he says you know this kind doesn't come out but by prayer and fasting but in the story if I'm remembering it correctly, everybody said in the Gospel of Mark, this boy's mute and he can't speak. He's mm. mute. He's unable to describe what he's going through. Wow. So all we know is that he starts being thrown into fire and water and he'll do these things. He'll self-harm himself. But when Jesus speaks to the boy, he says to him, come out. He speaks to the spirit in the boy. Come out, you deaf and mute spirit. Jesus knew he wasn't only unable to speak, but in his internal experience, how the spirit was tormenting him, it made him unable to hear the words of comfort that anybody else was giving him. Oh, wow. So Jesus in that moment, it's because you ask yourself, why does he mention, why doesn't he just say, come out spirit? But everybody knows the spirit's making the boy mute. No one can see the world through the boy's eyes, though. Mm. And it's also making him deaf. So it was like, I'm no, you're no longer you're going to be able to bind this boy's ability to weep and cry out for comfort, but you're not gonna be able to bind his ability to receive comfort either.